The job. The stress. We are, there is an active shooter working at Douglas. Multiple gunshots are being fired. Politics. Politics. Pressure. Pressure. Get out of here. We got a guy with a long rifle. We don't know where the hell he's at. Fear. Survival. Control 765, I need the radio for a minute. Be advised, we are taking fire from a very high floor. We believe it's possibly coming from the Mandalay Bay. And we get it. And we have to do better. The truth behind the badge. Presented by the Team South Florida Law Enforcement Charity. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast may or may not reflect those of any organization, agency, or entity. Any opinions expressed may be actual experiences, hypothetical situations, or information gathered from others. Please sit back and enjoy the show. All suspects are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Good evening. This is Rich from Team South Florida. I am joined once again for part two now of this episode. We got JR and we got Cornell. Real excited to have both of you guys on. For those that might not recall, part one of this three-part series focused on mental mindset. We discussed how important it is to be prepared mentally, physically, emotionally. We talked a little bit about family and things outside of the job. Now we're going to focus on when it hits the fan. We're going to talk about when it gets serious and why it's so important to be so prepared. I have to say I'm humbled and I'm honored that we've got these two guests with us today. And it's pretty cool that we're able to sit down and just have a conversation. There's a stigma in law enforcement where a lot of times people are afraid to just have conversations like this, especially on tough topics, difficult topics, emotional topics. Real quick, I just want to say thank you again, JR. Thank you, Cornell. Cornell, if you want, can you start us off with just a very brief synopsis on one of the incidents that you've been through? Sure thing, man. Uh, One Obviously, one of the incidents that stands out the most for me is an officer-involved shooting that I was involved in about five years ago. It was July 4th, very quiet night, easy going. Uh, I think I'd only answered one call. Shortly after midnight, a robbery in progress came out, responded to the call. I wasn't dispatched, but it was nothing else going on. So I just kind of started to head that way. Wasn't really expecting to get on scene and there still be anything in progress. But again, just headed that way as I had done probably hundreds of times in my career. Just a few seconds away from arriving, I realized nobody else had arrived. I opened the door to my car, and before my foot hit the ground, I hear a series of shots ring out. I started to make my way with another officer to the uh, entrance of the business. It was a gas station. The suspect emerged, challenged, and uh, we exchanged shots. He went down. He was taken into custody. And I later found out just moments after the our exchange of fire that the clerk had been killed. Wow. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll definitely get more into that in a little bit. And thank God you're okay and here with us and able to talk about it. Jr. your incident is glaringly different from Cornell's. Yours was off duty, correct? Correct. And it kind of demonstrates how quickly you can go from off duty to basically on duty uh, in a matter of seconds. Can you uh, give us a brief synopsis on yours? Yeah, so mine was November of 2020. So we're really just kind of short away from it. It's very, uh, the incident's still kind of fresh. 
Uh, it was the early morning of November uh, 14th. Uh, I was getting up in the morning. I was getting ready to head out to go to the gym. My wife and kids had just left my house, probably about our house, about 10 minutes prior. Uh, and I loaded my stuff up with my gear to head off to the gym to work out with some of my buddies. Uh, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, it was bright and early. I was off and, you know, just normal routine for me to kind of work out early Saturday morning. So I leave my neighborhood, I exit it and I get to the first stop like just outside of my neighborhood. So literally less than a quarter mile away from my home, there was a, a white vehicle uh, that pulled up beside me. Uh, I immediately noticed two males in that vehicle that had medical masks over their face and hoods. And that was just kind of a sign. They were kind of both had that thousand yard stare looking down me and we talk all the time in law enforcement about that a thousand yards there and those pre-attack indicators. And I just felt that vibe. Um, and before I could even know it, uh, the light turned green and there was a, a volley of shots that were ringing out um, into my personal vehicle. Um, I was struck uh, one time and I was also grazed as well. Um, but there were total counter shots in the car. There was about 17 bullet holes in my vehicle in close proximity. Uh, I was able to uh, escape that situation get some first aid, be able to apply some first aid to myself, contact communications, let them know who I was, where I was, and what had happened uh, until I could get some other first responders on the scene. So really thankful to be here to kind of talk about it and, you know, grow through it. And obviously it's a still ongoing investigation, but I'm really happy to be able to talk about it. And hopefully somebody learns from that situation. Wow. Well, man, thank God both of you are okay. And 17 rounds into your car is just, Somebody was looking after you that day. Yeah, for sure. Your uh, your incident, man. Everything you just said really harps on the importance of a lot of topics, but mainly prioritizing what you need to do, taking care of yourself, the first aid, the communication, everything like that. Two completely separate incidents between on duty and off duty, yet very similar in the way things are are handled. Cornell, your incident was roughly how long ago? Twenty fifteen. So. Was that six years? So this question could probably help JR as well as our listeners. So your question was a couple of years ago. How fresh is it in your mind? Do you have thoughts about it? Did things remind you of it? How long did it take for you to feel okay to talk about it? Initially, after the event, uh, I had a major tell me like the day or so after. He was like, you're not normal. You may feel normal, but you're not normal. It was probably about a week or two after my incident that my wife said something to me. Uh, I, to this day, I don't remember what it was, but I know it was silly. And it just, I kind of spun out from there. I was like an emotional wreck, just kind of processing whatever it was she said to trigger it. And thankfully, I had a good friend of mine that had previously been shot that, you know, I, I knew I could be vulnerable with. And uh, he scooped me up. And we went out to the actual scene of where it happened. And I cried. He cried. We went and uh, broke bread together. And that was really uh, a really significant point of my, I don't want to say recovery, um, just kind of beginning to unpack what happened is having that person that I could lean on and talk to that could relate. As far as how long that took beyond that point, I would say it was gradual. I, I can't give you like a specific timeline that, oh, six months later, I was perfectly normal. But I knew that about two weeks into it, after that breaking point and having someone where I could actually begin to talk to and unpack those feelings was the starting point. I know that I was super hyper vigilant for quite some time following that incident. You know, every time I went to a gas station, 
I didn't want to get caught off guard. So I was, I mean, in my playing clothes, filling up my personal car, like scanning, looking for the next armed robbery suspect to emerge from a gas station. I'm not in that place anymore. Certainly, you know, conscious of my situational awareness, but I'm not in that place anymore. It's been six years now. And I called JR up just a few weeks ago and was telling him about a, a moment when I was out to eat with my kids and saw a guy that I had previously arrested with a gun. You know, I don't want to say anxiety attack, but there was a certain physiological response to, I mean, let's call it anxiety. I, I had basically an anxiety-like attack, and that was as recent as just a few months ago. So it's definitely a process, but it's one that it's easier to cope with when you've got other people you can rely on. Yeah, I think this is one of the things that a lot of people either take for granted or have no idea, especially when you hear people criticize or second guess or judge, and they've got zero training or experience in the field. To that point, JR, you seem to have reacted exactly like you should, almost textbook. It's got to be a testament to your training. Where Do you put that on yourself? Do you put that on uh, some some of your peers? Well, I mean, most importantly, you know, I put it on, on God. It's, I think it was the grace of God, most importantly, first. Uh, but definitely my training and experience um, through just multiple situations, obviously picking up on those clues, those nonverbal clues. And it's, it kind of speaks to that type of level of awareness that you have to have on duty. It's like, you know, when you're in your personal car, when you're in your uniform, you almost have an expected awareness. You're at, you know, you're at that that threat level where you're yellow and you're kind of aware of everything. You're almost expecting things to happen. But, when you know, when you're off duty, you naturally kind of, you know, you relax a little bit in, in, a, in a sense. You know, you, you're not in uniform. You don't have a vest on. You may have your gun, but you're in a relaxed setting. You know, you're you're in a civilian atmosphere. You're in a civilian uh, type setting. So in, this, in a sense, you know, you're always on duty. You know, your training kicks in. It goes back. We talked about in the first episode, you know, sit with your back to the door. You know, being aware, maybe see the exits, you know, looking at those things, being prepared, talking to your kids, preparing your wife. You know, you're always doing those things in the back of your head. And there's been so many times over my career where I've thought about that incident happening, not necessarily in my patrol, in my personal car, but more importantly, happening in my patrol car on, on, on duty. You know, you've, you've, we've seen cops ambushed and killed in the line of duty all over the country. And I put myself mentally through those scenarios like, what would I do? How would I escape? How can I? you know, be putting myself in my vehicle in a position where I do have an escape route where I can put myself in advantage, you know, to win. Um, so it, it, it's definitely a level of training um, that, that kicks in and it's, it's naturally it's something that you don't ever have to think about. It's something that just naturally happens because it's something you do day in and day out, prepare yourself for that type of situation. As far as uh, something that I forgot to ask earlier, when you said 17 rounds, were those rounds placed any specific place? Did any of them come Close to, you know, any areas? Uh, so to, to tell you how, a lot of times we, you know, people talk about, you know, these guys not spraying, you know, these these criminals not uh, just spraying and randomly shooting people. These rounds were very, uh, very precise, very precise rounds. Uh, there was a, at least three bullet holes in my headrest uh, where if I was sitting in a position where my head would be placed on my headrest as normal drivers would be, I would have been struck in the head three times because there was uh, wow. there was bullet holes within inches of one another. I mean, very tight grouping is as these guys train and they're experienced in shooting. So the round, some of the rounds were a little bit scattered, but there were very precise rounds uh, aimed at where they thought that I was going to be. Uh, and had I been there, I would not be here today talking to you guys about it. 
That is scary. Just frightening. Yeah. All right. So before we started this episode, I put out a question on our Instagram, just opened it up and said, we we're going to be talking with two police officers about two critical incidents. If anybody had any questions, I'm going to go through some of these questions. And if either of you prefer to answer it, feel free. A little disclaimer I'm just going to throw out there. Don't feel obligated to answer some of the questions as it relates to you. If you can answer it third hand, second hand from another person that's been in an incident, feel free. I, I just don't want to put all of this on you guys as individuals. I appreciate you guys being here. Uh, somebody put down, I was in a shooting. Can you share some advice or guidance for parents about explaining something like this to your children, especially if they happen to see it in the news or if they hear about it from their friends at school? Wow, that's a good question. So my daughter at the time of my incident was, I think she was about three. My son, my wife was pregnant with my son. He wasn't here yet. And right as I was, I was only out of work for about a month. And when I was getting ready to go back to work, my daughter was in my closet with me. And she looked at me and said, are you about to go shot somebody? Right. I mean, that's three-year-old talk. And it caught me completely off guard because I never talked to her. You know, I never, I didn't come home and say, daddy, he was in a shooting today. So she said, are you going to go to work to shot somebody? And Mind you, 2015, Black Lives Matter, all the social unrest is in full swing. So she's it kind of it just shocked me that she was as aware of what was going on. And the way I responded to her that day was, I sure hope not. But if I, you know, if I've got to so that I can get back home to you. Sometimes that uh, that's the nature of what we do. They're, they're bad guys out here. They're evil people out here. And if they're trying to hurt me or someone else. That's a that's a, something I might have to do. Another one for you, Cornell, uh, just because I'm looking at this question and piggybacking off of what you just mentioned. Somebody said, if you had to use force, did you hesitate or would you hesitate with everything going on these days? I know that question is posed for these days, but you, you just said what you said uh, going back several years. It's been like this for years. It just seems to be getting worse. Yeah. Just to make sure I understand the question, you said, would I hesitate? He said, did you or would you hesitate with everything going on these days? Kind of like JR said, right? When, you, when you're training for these moments and you've got the mindset for these moments, in that moment of truth, it's execution. One of the questions that the State Bureau of Investigations agent asked me was, when did I decide to fire? I was like, I never made that decision. It was purely execution. It was, it was, it was no... Okay, this meets the use of force continuum and it it justifies it. So now I'm going to do it. Was, it was it was a life or death situation and it was purely execution. And I would like to think that regardless of what the social climate may be or political climate may be, when it's a matter of getting back home to my wife and two kids, it is what it is. Right. Um, Jr. referenced this in the first series or first episode that we recorded about, you know, relying on that training. And I think that that's why it's crucially important that that's hardwired into you so that when it's time to execute, you don't have to make a decision. You just execute. So I, I don't think that I'd ever compromise my my safety or safety of another officer or citizen uh, out of concern of public uh, persecution. Yeah, I'm thinking personally on that. I'm still mad at myself all these years later. I had had a guy that was committing a criminal mischief, slashing tires and everything. I respond to the scene. It was working night shift and he had a knife and 
according to the use of force policy and according to training and everything else, I 100% would have been justified in shooting him as he was walking towards me with the knife. He wasn't running at me. He wasn't extremely close distance, but he had a knife and he was walking towards me and refusing to obey any verbal commands. And I'm still mad at myself to this day because ultimately I ended up taking him into custody, but we got into a fist fight. And I remember distinctly thinking during the incident, I remember the backdrop was an apartment complex and all these windows and it was dark. And I'm also going to throw out there that the whole race thing, annoying at times because he was a white male and I'm a white male. So it had nothing to do with, you know, black versus white or any of that stuff. But I'm annoyed at myself because I remember thinking I should have been focused on being safe, addressing the situation. And in my mind for a split second or two, I'm thinking about if I shoot this guy who's got a cell phone camera inside an apartment complex looking out the window, how are they going to edit this clip, show a certain angle? And so to answer that earlier question, I would have to say I would be guilty of hesitating to do what I should have done then. But lucky for me, I ended up very minor injuries and suspect ended up uh, going to jail that day. Go ahead, Cornell. You got something else? So rich, man. Um, kind of two things that come to my mind as I listen to you speak. My situation was, sounds like it may have been a bit more uh, dynamic and, you know, a little faster evolving than yours was. Right. And I think that in a scenario where you have time to choose between the levels of force you want to use, if you're able to process it as much as you were, considering your backdrop, knowing what was beyond your target, uh, weighing whether or not you could go hand to hand with them. If you have the luxury of time to do that, I would never criticize an officer that does do that. Right. If you're human, if you've got good morals, good values, none of us want to come to work and shoot somebody. Right. That's going to always be the last resort. So. Without knowing any background or backstory to your situation, you know, people will criticize you and critique you after the fact, but you were there, you made a judgment call in the moment and you won, right? You suspect was taken into custody. You came out safe. And those were decisions that only you could make because you were there. Just like JR situation, when it's happening, you know, some people, why didn't you shoot? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? You're there and you got to make the decision. He made a decision that saved his life. You made a decision that saved the suspect's life and yours. JR and I often talk about the difference between the legal standard and the moral standard. And right now, I think that it's crucial that officers, when they have the luxury of time like you did, that they remember the moral standard. Because we can, we, it's very easy to meet your state's statute on the use of deadly force. It's very easy. It's very easy to articulate it. Anybody has done his job long enough can spew it out, right? By the time you graduate the academy, you should be able to say, if this is present, I can do this and I'm good to go. But to be able to look at a situation, evaluate all your options and take the one with the least amount of force, that takes a, a greater skill set than just pulling the trigger. And it takes more courage than just pulling the trigger, man. So I, I wouldn't, you know, I respect what you're saying, but I wouldn't beat myself up in your situation. No, I... I, and I appreciate that. I got to take this away from me because I don't want it to be about me. This is about you guys. So let me turn it over to JR real quick. 
Well, I think this is a really good topic. And to kind of speak more into it, I have a, a very uh, situation that kind of really speaks to this. Uh, it was when I was working narcotics, we were uh, watching a specific suspect doing some surveillance. And I was in the stop car with my sergeant. Uh, well, we end up uh, stopping the, the, the suspect in the case. And it was a very, very quick traffic stop kind of things kind of escalated very quickly. I saw the driver kind of climb over the driver's seat over to the passenger seat and exit the vehicle. And I was on the passenger side as that individual uh, stepped out of the vehicle. I mean, obviously, I was going to draw my gun because I'm like, you know, when, some, when that car door opens up and you saw thousands of videos of cops just being riddled with bullets uh, after a traffic stop. So I was kind of already in the motion of, you know, quote unquote, breaking leather to address that situation or to address that potential threat. Well, the driver exit and he has a Glock 17 uh, with a 30 round mag in it, in his hand. Um, and, you know, you talk about what you do in that moment, you know, will you hesitate? What will you do? And you, it, we like to say that we act and we shoot and we, you know, we respond and we, uh, as Cornell said, execute. Um, but until you get to the show, until you get to, to, until you have to make that decision, I think you don't know what you'll do. Um, and in that situation, I drew down, I gave commands. Um, and while I could have easily been justified to, you know, use deadly force, um, I was really watching that individual's body movements. I was watching those nonverbal cues because I, I just love the nonverbal cues. They'll tell you everything about a person. Um, and he didn't have any type of pre-attack indicators. I could see that in those moments, which was a very short 15 seconds, uh, that he was more so trying to escape than he was trying to attack. He didn't get out and immediately turn his hips our way. He didn't address us. He didn't approach us forward. He immediately exited the vehicle and looked left. He never looked back at us as if he was trying to get his target acquisition. So I was like, man, this guy has to be running. So he takes off running with the gun. We give chase, still giving command. And he's going across the street to a crowded parking lot. And I'm thinking, well, I can't let this guy get into the parking lot, maybe carjack somebody else. But I also have to be aware of my backstop and what's beyond it. I got people in the parking lot. Um, and just as we crest the hill, um, and as I'm pulling the slack out of my trigger to make that decision, the guy drops the gun and continues to run. Well, we holster and end up getting the guy in custody, you know, and I kind of beat myself up a little bit about that in the beginning. I'm like, man, you know, I, I feel like I hesitated. That guy could have shot and killed me, could have shot and killed one of you guys. And, you know, did I make the right decision? And, you know, I had to sit down with my sergeant, and, you know, kind of just, you know, just debrief. And he was like, man, you have to understand that the position that you were in speaks to your level of training. You were able to do all of that in a very short amount of time to assess that situation, and you made the right decision. The guy, the bad guys in custody, we go home. We don't have to shoot anybody. We don't have to live with that. Um, so that's just that's kind of a situation I spoke to uh, that I can speak to that kind of I guess speaks to that topic that we were that were particularly on. I thought it was very interesting that you guys yeah. brought that up. No, I, I definitely agree, and I appreciate it. Definitely interesting, and it's it's nice to hear. One of the other questions that came up, somebody said, did you hear critics or some from within your agency judging you? I, I could tell you from the little bit that I heard from both of you, I don't know how anybody would criticize your incidents, but do either of you want to touch on how critical, unfortunately, some of our own can be towards some of our own in this profession? Yeah, I think, you know, most people, uh, and me and Cece talk about it all the time, we, we, we talk about those people, those individuals, you look at those officers and there's been so many officers that are in these departments. You know who the guys, uh, you know who the warriors are. You know who the frontline guys are. You know who the guys that are there just to collect the paycheck. And so, you know, a lot of times, you know who the hard charging guys are. You know the guys that are experienced. And it's kind of 
I guess, degrading to get criticized by people who've never, in a sense, been to that that show, never been to the incident. So you got to be really careful about being critical of officers and how they do things uh, and how what decisions they make because everybody reacts totally different. You know, I've been in situations where I've been in you know in a fight for my life, and you know I had a, a seasoned veteran guy who was you know two or three years off from retiring and say, well, why did you just shoot him? You know, and this is like, man, you you weren't here. You weren't in the fight. You don't know what type of hold I had or what type of position I was in to even use force. Um, but the job was done. So I think I've been criticized. I, I don't think it really feels good. I mean, it's it's really disheartening when one of your own people who you work with have so much to say about it. You know, it goes back to that Monday morning quarterback. It's like, man, you weren't there. You don't know how you'd react. It's easy to say what you would do when you aren't there. So I, I, I think that's that's a big issue within our in our profession. I agree. Cornell, anything to add on that? What can you add, man? Um, in law enforcement, and I'm sure this is not unique to us, but it's all I know. I think we're our own biggest enemies. And, you know, for anybody listening, I would urge that once an officer has survived a critical incident, that you steer clear from judging them. Like, like JR said, you weren't, you weren't there. The micro details, the things they saw, smelled, felt, you weren't there. So you can't really analyze that. But certainly just as they are coping, you know, all of us after an incident gonna say we're good. But when they're in their quiet time and they're trying to unpack that, the last thing they need to factor in is the opinions of somebody that was probably in the bed or asleep or behind a desk when it was unfolding. To change the mood up a little bit, but staying on the same topic, somebody said, can anybody explain the first 24 hours and what it was like? Did you sleep at all? And I want to add to that also. For those listening that maybe they share this with the supervisor or command staff, or they're in a supervisor or command staff position, for the first 24 hours, first part of the question, can you explain what the first 24 hours was like and did you sleep at all? Second part of the question, any advice that you would have for people in an agency to address an officer that's been in a situation like that for the first 24 hours so they can help these officers? You know, I'll lead out and then uh, I'm sure JR's got something to add with his incident being so recent and so personal. If you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? After a critical incident, when you're, when you're checking in on that, that brother, that sister, first thing to do is just make sure their needs are met. Is your family okay? Are you okay? Do you need food? You know, it's just, you don't need to ask what happened. You don't need to give your opinion about what happened. You don't need to critique whether it be good or bad about the incident. Check in on that person, because when the vest comes off and the gun goes up in the safe, they're human and they've got to deal with some real human emotions. So by showing that you care, just take care of those needs, man. Uh, after Jr. got shot, you know, I was out of town right when it happened. But the next time I saw him, I was like, bro, you, you and the wife need food. I'm bringing you dinner. That's all I can do. When you're ready to talk, we can talk. But right now, I just want to make sure you and the family are good. Um, and I can't take credit for thinking of that. When I was involved in a, a different incident some years prior, I got a, a text message from, he's a sergeant now, but I got a text message from another officer that simply said, I don't know what happened. I don't need to know what happened, but if you need anything, I'm here for you. I didn't take him up on that offer, but I remember how knowing that he was concerned about me as a person made me feel. And I've tried to carry that forward with others that have been involved in critical incidents ever since. It's funny, uh, before JR taps into that, I remember about a year ago, there was an officer that responded to a kind of a traumatic call involving a uh, a dead child. 
And somebody reached out to us, to our organization, gave us his information, was like, hey, I'm just concerned about the guy. He's been around the block a long time. He's probably fine, but can you just reach out? All right, no problem. I reached out to him and we spoke for about two hours on the phone. And do you know, he said, in over 20 years of policing, that was the first time he's ever had an incident where somebody reached out and they didn't ask specifically about the incident. They just wanted to make sure he was good. Let him talk, wow. let, him, let him debrief. So that was kind of hit me a little bit. And it's going back to what you were talking about, Cornell, about the importance of uh, of that. Did you, uh, one of the other parts of that question was, did you have trouble sleeping the first day or two or a little bit after? And then we'll go to JR. <laughs> My incident was in the middle of the night. I got home probably within about four hours of, of of the incident, and I just wanted to get to my my see my wife and my daughter. They were asleep, of course, but I got home and I actually crashed. Um, I think just you know after that intense adrenaline jump, I, I went to sleep and you know slept for a few hours before the sun came up. I can speak to the days following the incident. I had some dreams that were direct, not nightmares or anything crazy, but I had reoccurring dreams for some weeks following my incident. That was another indicator to me that there was something going on below the surface that I couldn't even articulate. All right, Ted, you're up, Gerald. So uh, for me to, to address the first part of the question, after my incident, I was kind of really still in shock. Uh, but, you know, that I, like, like C said, I crashed. I mean, I think all the adrenaline everything that built up in that day, you know, being in the hospital, getting out, having everybody kind of shelter me home, answering questions, talking to investigators. I think I was just so burnt out and I was ready to rest uh, that I crashed. And I really haven't had any issues sleeping since my incident. Uh, no bad dreams of waking up in sweats, thinking about it. There's obviously times where I still replay it, but I didn't have any issues sleeping at all after my incident. I was kind of somewhat at peace with it. And to speak on the second part of the question, I think it's very key for us to give the officer space. Those, those 24 hours are extremely key. And we have to know that one, somebody's there to support us. You know what I mean? Because there's a thousand things going on in your head, whether you're involved in the officer involved shooting, you're worried about, you know, did I do everything right? What's going to happen? You start worried about, you know, legal issues. You start worried about how the command is going to think about it, what the media is going to think about it, what the public's going to think about it. And it's no more, uh, it's so uh, rewarding to have people who, uh, brothers and sisters uh, who wear the same uniform you do to to really be there for you and to really care about you. And it's very important, not only those line workers, you know, those those other line deputies or other line officers that work your beat with you, uh, but when a supervisor does it, you know, and not just your watch commander, but when a, when a captain or a chief or a major or somebody of higher ranking calls you just to see how you're doing, it means everything. Um, and I can tell you from being involved in those situations, I was waiting on the call. I was waiting on the call from the sheriff. I was waiting on the call from the chief and the majors and the captains, uh, the guys who don't work with me directly, who aren't directly uh, on the front line. I was waiting to see how they react. And, uh, you know, it was very supportive to um, hear the sheriff, you know, reach out, come to the hospital uh, and, and shake my hand, uh, meet my wife and tell me that, you know, we're going to work it out. We're going to catch these guys. That's uh, rewarding. And we have to really uh, start to build upon those those good habits of policing to take care of our, our people. Well, I'll tell you what you're describing is good leadership. And that's yeah. as simple as that. And we could have a whole episode on that. We've talked about this for a little bit now, a couple of times. We've had people tell us that they've been in incidents and they've been waiting for a phone call or a message from a chief or a sheriff or a major or a deputy chief or a cat. And they're, the phone call never comes. And that's disheartening. If it comes to a podium or an interview with media, 
they're front and center right away. And the flip side of that, as you described, we've also had people where the sheriff himself has met with family members, shaken hands, hugged them, told them everything's going to be okay. We got your back, things like that. So I'm happy to hear what you said, because that, that to me demonstrates good leadership. And that is not universal, especially these days, unfortunately. Agree. Somebody asked, how important is the internal support? So you kind of touched on this yourself, JR. For me personally, I'm going to just throw my, my two cents in here. It's not that important for me, believe it or not. I have a core group of people that I can count on, that I rely on, that I can talk to, that I can vent with, that we can share information to and from. And we're kind of there for each other. So when the person says internal support, I'm assuming they're referencing the agency as a whole. For me personally, as I've grown over the years, I've grown to rely less on the overall agency and more so my core group of people. Cornell, your two cents or three? You took the words right out of my mouth, man. Um, So if you work for an agency of middle to large size, there's a lot of people that wear the same uniform. And if an officer calls out in distress, we're coming like a family. But when it comes to being vulnerable, transparent, and having that like legitimate uh, confidant, my circle is super small. And I think that that small inner circle is more important to me than, you know, the outpouring of support from the agency at large. Um, we spoke about it again in the first episode about the, the importance of just having that, that battle. Like I said, after my incident, I knew, thankfully, I had that person that I could be transparent and broken before, and that meant everything to me. Well said. Uh, somebody else put, I, I moved these questions around as we're talking, and it's flown really well. Somebody said, I would agree to talking with someone, but I don't trust my administration or my peer support team. Your thoughts? I'm going to leave it to you, too, and then I'm going to follow up with this. Um, maybe, maybe not. We'll see. Uh, I can I can address that with a fresh situation. Um, a lot of times with our agency, and I'm really happy they do this, is when you're involved in a critical incident, uh, they start to put us through this uh, this program. It's called the FR, FMRT group. Uh, it's, a, it's a group of, uh, you know, doctors or psychiatrists that not necessarily, you know, it's not like a pass or fail thing or, not, or any type of fit for duty. But uh, it's, you know, someone that you can talk to uh, to kind of debrief or, you know, and that, none of that stuff gets recorded or put back uh, to the agency. They don't, they don't have to report back. Um, but I've, I've realized going through those incidents and I've been to multiple incidents of, you know, talking with MR, FMRT, um, some good, some bad. Um, but more specifically in my last situation where I was shot, um, speaking with the first doctor was very, it wasn't a really good experience. I don't think that she had enough, uh, knowledge um and it was very uncomfortable to talk to somebody who doesn't do what i do and she i don't think she could really understand i had a lot of questions that were challenging to her and that she did not have the answers to and that she was referring me to check back with my chain of command and i was like well i'm not looking for my chain of command to give me those answers i'm coming to you because you're supposed to be the expert um so i haven't had a really much success um through the eap programs and you know through what the agency offers um I actually got with Cornell right after my incident and he recommended um, a, a program here called NC Leap. Uh, this is a really great program that I got connected with uh, the, the one of the head guys and he connected me with another peer, peer support specialist. And I talked with this guy 
often. The guy's retired from the ATF. He's undercover agent for years, and we still talk. Uh, I'll call him, you know, once or twice a week, or when I'm having an issue, I'll call him, and he he just listens. Um, and I respect it because he's done the job. He's been there. He's been to the show. He's been involved in incidents. So it's more comfortable and it's more welcoming for me to talk to somebody uh, that understands it versus a stranger um, who, who who's never seen danger before. So it's twofold. You have to have the goal in mind. So you'll have peer support, which is typically from your peers, but you could also have a specialist, a doctor, who knows, you know, there's plenty of people that have been in this profession that then go on to get their doctorates and everything like that. But I feel like you need to know if you're talking about the specific incident or your mental well-being and your mindset and getting you back to where you need to be, so on and so forth. We've heard horror stories with EAP programs, pretty much exactly what you just described. And I don't want to bash them too much because there are some doctors out there that have experience with first responders. And what I tend to find is those doctors without the experience of doing the job, but with the experience of talking with first responders, they make it clear that they're not going to have the answers with a tactical situation or tactical questions of the specific incident, but they can recognize behavioral changes and things of that nature. Cornell, your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, to your point, obviously I had to go through JR and I work in the same jurisdiction, different agencies. So I've gone through FMRT a few times for a few different incidents, all kind of departmental mandated stuff. It's it's not the same as talking to a brother or sister that's actually been to the show, but I, I don't want to discredit it because there is value there. It's a different value, but there's value there. Uh, after my shooting, about a week later, I had to go to FMRT, which again, those are professional psychologists. I did not want to go. I didn't want to be there. I wanted to show as much defiance as I could without getting fired. So I wore flip-flops, basketball shorts, just <laughs> unshaven, just to let them know I didn't want to be there. And the young lady uh, basically opened up and she's like, what are you thinking? And I was like, I'm thinking you don't know nothing about nothing about what I'm dealing with or, you know, what I've dealt with. And she she owned it right away. She was like, I don't. I'm just somebody you can talk to. And I was like, oh, cool. I got a cool story to tell you. Let me tell you what happened. And before I know it, knew it at the end of the session, you know, in a safe, neutral, judgment-free environment, I was able to give my once over without any questions or interruptions or critiques, and then start telling her some stuff that I had thought about and dreamed about. And she was able to give me, you know, like the physiological, psychological reference points to what I had experienced. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Um, I didn't need follow-up visits. I didn't go for follow-up visits. You know, for me, my therapy took place on the shoulders of brothers. Um, and that's where I saw value. But different people need different things. So to the person who authored that question about with trust being at the center of the issue, there are certain things that are protected by law, whether it be your EAP programs, your peer support programs, where confidentiality is, again, guaranteed by law. Unless you're going to say you want to hurt yourself or somebody else, you're protected by law. So people need to remember that. But we all understand that in law enforcement, you know, it can be like high school, right? There's no secrets. Everybody's talking. So if that's a concern, you may need to look for support outside of your agency or outside of the formal resources. And, you know, law enforcement is such a huge network. Me, me and JR up here in North Carolina, 
you're down in Florida. But I know if I got a brother that's got those concerns with trust or doesn't feel comfortable talking because of whatever the issue may be, I can reach out to Rich down in Florida. You know, the guy that JR is talking about, he's in South Carolina. I mean, we're a nationwide network. So I would urge anybody that's dealing with issues, dealing with any type of issues, reach out to somebody, you know, whether it's whether it's just simple, I need to talk and clear my head or whether it's I'm thinking about blowing my head off. Whatever your issues are, talk to somebody. This is a nationwide network and somebody has the resources that you need. You just got to figure out who that is. Well said. And you took the words from me because that was what I was going to finish off with on that topic is. Now, more than ever, there are more resources than ever before. So as long as you talk to somebody, get it out. And I completely understand the trust issue. Where I work, my agency that I work at, fortunately, we don't have this issue in the in the peer support team itself as, as it was or as it currently stands. But there are countless agencies that have that issue. Likewise, there's countless agencies that have their own teams where you can reach out to a member of their team. And just talk. I would say it's just as long as you communicate and don't keep it all in because we're losing too many of ourselves uh, to this. Last couple you know, of minutes. Go ahead. If I can cut you, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I, You're to, good. I want to touch on that point real quick, right? So historically, there's been this stigma. And when that person wrote about trust, I don't know if that's a trust just based off of professional reputation or if that's a trust of jeopardizing their career. And I think that, you know, there are resources out there where you, even if you're suicidal, right? If you're having suicidal ideations, I had to look it up, but it's safecallnowusa.org. You know, if you got drug abuse issues, suicidal issues, you can call them. They're, I think, in Utah in the middle of nowhere, and they'll get you straight, man. So I don't want to belabor that point, but if anybody's listening is having issues where they, they know that they're wrestling demons that are bigger than themselves, reach out to, to me. I'm sure reach out to Rich and we know about these resources, man. Yeah, we've connected a few people from uh, Chicago and New York seem to be the most common, uh, especially with everything going on in Illinois with the, the laws and the bills and everything. That seems to be two of the most popular places where people reach out for support. And it's kind of funny being in Florida, getting those messages or, or calls. Uh, it's not that we get too many of them, but to your point, it's a nationwide network. All right. Last question. What did you learn that you wish you knew before the incident? Both of you. What I've learned is uh, the importance of uh, first aid. Um, Self-care is is very key. You know, obviously you get that uh, first responder kind of training the how to treat people. Uh, You may get some of that stuff through your agency. I know being on SWAT, we do a lot of self-care stuff. Um, And just the importance of understanding that, you know, and I understand that, uh, but it's just even more value now going through the incidents of having things in your car that you may need. Uh, and I had a tourniquet in my car. Uh, I had every, most of the things that I needed in my vehicle. Um, I didn't, the one thing that I didn't have um, was a, a pressure dress and I didn't have that, but obviously you can use anything for a pressure dressing, but um, that's, that's key. You know, where that stuff is in your car, having it, you know, being accessible, even in your personal cars. I mean, we, we to think about our patrol guards, those things are loaded down war wagons. We have everything we need, but do you have those same necessary things in your vehicle uh, if the incident happened? Um, so after that incident, that's something I built upon, you know, building up a very, even more intricate go bag. 
uh, first aid care kit, things of that nature that I can put it in, you know, in my car care with emergency contacts and things that I may need. Um, because if that situation would have went south where I wasn't able to self, self-treat myself, no one would have known who I was. Um, so maybe putting some identifying placards or something in your car, some emergency contacts that where you, if you are by yourself and caught in a situation, that somebody is able to ID you or make contact and, and get the right people to you. Uh, so that's something I learned. I'm still stuck on the amount of rounds that went into your car and into your headrest. I'm- yeah, man. It's uh, crazy. I, I, I haven't seen the car personally since the incident. I just can't bring myself to look at it. Um, but my wife has gone to see it. I have seen photos, um, but I just can't bring myself to see the actual vehicle, man. But, you know, looking at the photos, it's just, it's amazing, man. You know, I, I you know, you talk about it all the time, not to, to, to get off topic, but you, you know, people say all the time, you know, when you're getting shot, man, you get small and rich, bro. I got small, bro. You know, I, I don't consider myself a little dude, but I got small, man. Um, I, and I got small and I, I went, <laughs> the place I went is where. I went where they didn't think I was going to be. I just I knew that I couldn't stay where they where they thought I was, and uh, and I knew that once those bullets stopped hitting my car, I was safe. And I didn't bring my head up until I stopped hearing those bullets uh, hit the siding of my car and breaking my glass. So I knew I had been hit once, but I was like, man, I'm not trying to get hit again. So very crappy place to be because you don't know where they are, you don't know where you're going, and you just try not to get shot. But you almost feel. That's the most violent I've ever felt, you know, because I consider myself a warrior and I know I'm a warrior, but not being able to fight back was one of the most hardest things that I had to really overcome. People have to tell me, and I talked to my guy from NC Leap, and he's like, man, that, that was the biggest fight you ever been in. You fought, you fought like a soldier, you know, and, and you won. You know, you didn't get a chance to get any rounds off or things like that, but you won that situation. So I'm thankful, man. But, you know, so much to learn from those situations. I'm just going to keep building upon those building blocks. Just thankful that you're here to talk about it. Exactly. Cornell. So I don't have like one particular lesson from the incident itself, but I would say from the journey, I think I wish I would have known some years ago how normal it is to feel abnormal, right? The conversation that I'm having with you now, uh, the conversations that I've had with JR and others, to be able to come out and say that I had dreams, to be able to say that, you know, my wife said something insignificant to me and I sat in my car and cried and called my buddy and we went out to the scene and cried. I I would not have been comfortable saying that some time ago because I felt like a unicorn, right? And once you open up and you start confiding in other brothers and sisters who have taken this walk, you realize you're not a unicorn, you're just another horse. And I wish I would have known that some years ago. Uh, it would have been, it would have possibly aided in my kind of coping a bit sooner, a bit faster. And I think that I could have possibly reached and helped others, you know, for a long time. Mm. Again, I, I had that one person that I felt comfortable being broken with. And that was very, uh, you know, that was invaluable in that moment. But outside of that, I had to put the mask on. And, you know, wear that mask of masculinity, macho-ness that, that plagues us in this, in this profession. But, you know, since then, it's like I said, it's been six years. I've been to conferences, seminars, one-on-one dialogues. And, you know, the feelings, emotions, and thoughts that I had the weeks and months and years to come, they weren't unique to me. Uh, and I wish I would have known that earlier. Very well said. And I think that's clearly part of the, the problem, you know. People 
are still stuck on that stigma, but I think it's slowly, slowly, slowly getting better. And I can tell you right now, last time we did our podcast, I think it was February 22nd, and we had 23 suicides. It's now March 12th, and there's 32 suicides. So just think about that for a second. From February 22nd to March 12th, it's just frustrating because each and every one of those is preventable. And you just have to wonder if any of those brothers or sisters of ours would have just reached out, you know, it's, it's tough. All right. We got three statements that weren't really questions. They're just, uh, it's nice that I'm going to include them. I'm going to read them real quick. And then I'm going to turn it over to each of you just for a minute or so, a final thought before we go to our traditional closing. So somebody wrote in, thank you for not giving up, especially after an incident with everything going on. Somebody else wrote, I hope you guys all know that there's more people that appreciate and respect you than those who don't. Somebody else wrote, thank you. Somebody else wrote, thank you so much for your daily sacrifice and service. Somebody else wrote, I don't have any question. I just want to say I have the utmost respect for you guys. Somebody else wrote, thank you. So it's nice to see the positive support. Granted, uh, our, our Instagram page doesn't really have much negativity and they tend to get blocked after they get hit with facts anyway but uh <laughs> there's there's some positive out there for us so jr i'll turn it to you final thought from you minute or two and then i'll go to cornell and then we'll wrap it up well i think my final thoughts man just kind of wrap wrap everything up in a nutshell is just you know that that mindset you know i think this this whole series has been about mindset and why it's so important uh preparing yourself mentally uh, mentally, physically, emotionally for these situations. Um, you know, it, it's very easy in this line of work to get complacent. It's been multiple times and spots in my career where I've gotten complacent. Um, and there's been multiple situations that have occurred that have uh, woken me up uh, and given me some type of insight of how vigilant that I have to remain. Um, and and you got to be honest with yourself. Uh, that's the other the other closing mark. Be honest with yourself. It's okay. Uh, to have bad days is okay to not be okay. Uh, that, that's perfectly normal. We are human at the end of the day. We're not robots. We have feelings. We have emotions. Um, but you also have to be real with yourself. If you're having a bad day, you, you know, if you need to call to work, call to work. Don't try to stomach that stuff. Don't try to mask with alcohol or any other type of self-treatment or self-medication. Get the help you need. Um, it's important. You know, there's there's nobody in this line of work that does this line of work and sees the stuff we do and does the stuff that we, that we do that doesn't have some type of form of post-traumatic stress syndrome when they're not dealing with some type of stress and anxiety. So be real with yourself, be honest, um, and, and, and make it okay and normalize it being okay to not have a good day and, and, and move on, but to continue to grow and, and learn from it. Yeah, I love that. And a lot of what you guys said show just how human we are. I, I love that. All right, tough to follow up, but go ahead. All gas, no brakes. Cornell. All gas, no brakes. Man, listen, uh, to piggyback off of what JR said, I'm going to make two points. Uh, I saw a Facebook post today that said, concealed carry tip. If you carry a gun with $3,000 worth of work, two spare magazines, two knives, have a truck gun and can't run a mile, you aren't as prepared as you think. You know, a lot of preparedness is not in shooting. How well you can shoot is going to be in your mind, taking care of your body, and you're only as resilient as as you are the effort you put into those things right so whether it's yoga video games cycling weightlifting you got to make sure you're taking care of the mind and the body 
to prepare for these moments, to survive the incident itself, and then to survive the recovery and aftermath of everything you're going to have to deal with. Love it. And that's a perfect segue for part three of the three-part series with what is important and priorities and what we're going to focus on. So really appreciate you guys, humbled by you guys, and love that we can sit down and have these somewhat difficult conversations almost with ease. Uh, People loved part one. I'm sure they're going to love part two. And part three will follow in a little while. So in our traditional closing, as we wrap up the podcast episode, we like to honor our fallen law enforcement brother or sister who were killed on the same day that the podcast was recorded. So it is March 12th, 2021. We're reminded of Hillsborough County Deputy Sheriff John Cotfilia Jr. And man, oh man, a lot of us in Florida remember this incident like it was yesterday. Deputy Cotfilia was killed in a head-on collision with a wrong-way impaired driver in the very early morning hours. Witnesses actually came forward and stated that Deputy Cotfilia drove past them and intentionally drove into the path of the wrong-way driver, saving them. Deputy Cotfilia and the other driver tragically died at the scene. Deputy Cotfilia left behind his parents, his sister, two brothers, and was just 30 years young. And we had the honor of meeting some of his family up in Washington, D.C. We had the honor of going to that funeral. And the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office was a class act, something that we will never forget. And I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge that this past Tuesday, March 9th, 2021, basically five years to the day, uh, Tampa Police Master Police Officer Jesse Madsen, who's a husband, a father of three, a United States Marine combat veteran, and a 16-plus year law enforcement veteran, was tragically killed in the early morning hours as well. Very, very stark reminder for us of Deputy Cafilia's incident. Uh, Master Police Officer Madsen was just 45 years young. He was a seven-time Lifesaving Award recipient and likely gave his life earning his eighth. Uh, Tampa Police Chief Brian Duggan said Officer Madsen intentionally veered into the wrong-way driver's vehicle to help protect and save others. Sadly, both the speeding wrong-way driver and Officer Madsen both died at the scene, and we will vow to never, ever, ever forget them or their families. May they both rest easy. 